thanks everybody for joining us um, for uh, extra special. They're all extra special version of week in Washington. It's extra special because we have a lot of infrastructure stuff to talk with you all about, um, including um, information about what's happening within the BIF, what's happening with uh, bipartisan um, negotiation, uh, uh, bipartisan negotiation, but also what's happening with the reconciliation or the um, the bill that has been proposed by the Democrats. Um, certainly a really interesting sort of mashup of information. And then in addition, we have a, a little bit of tidbits, a couple bits of scuttlebutt about what's happening with Treasury and ARPA and a little bit of information on IRS Treasury and how we are approaching our um, outreach with them as well. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm looking right now. Do we have Michael Thomas on the line, Marie? We do have Michael Thomas on the line, there Marie. There you are. All right. I'm going to pass it over to you, Michael. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, sorry for non-video. I am in a, uh, a not normal location for this. and my, my bandwidth has been a little bit tricky, so I'll be without video this time. And just a comment, you know, every one of these is special, Emily, because we're here, you know, with our, our lovely members. So as Emily had alluded to, uh, the news over the past couple of weeks has been or continues to be dominated by the what is uh, titled the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That was formerly the Bipartisan Structure uh, Act that Emily had alluded to. And then, of course, there's the ginormous, huge, uh, giant um, $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, which we'll call the, the, the Build Back Better plan, because it's uh, not really, you know, a reconciliation bill is sort of a compilation, different pieces here and there, making up uh, one big uh, agenda, basically, much of it coming from uh, the current administration and, and uh, some of the programs and priorities that were outlined earlier in the year through the American Jobs Act and the American Family Plan. So getting a, a clear uh, frame of, of where we are now, uh, again, as Emily said, there are two things. Uh, so the infrastructure bill is is kind of waiting in the wings, if you will. Uh, the Senate has actually already successfully voted on the Infrastructure Investment uh, and Jobs Act. That was the uh, the big back and forth that we've been discussing since the end of the spring and summer about how much money is going to go where. I, I've spent a couple of these weeks in Washington, uh, sort of uh, teasing out the difference between you know, what is a new investment into infrastructure? You know, what, where are the new dollars and where are they going? And then what the rest of, of the money is going, because this is a $1 trillion bill uh, with $550 billion in new spending over five years, as you can see there. And the $450 billion is what I, I'm calling, and this is not an official term or anything, is reauthorizing funds. Uh, they are funds that were going to be on the calendar for for review or revision, no matter what. And if they weren't, they would sort of drop off the budget and there'd be a giant hole left in that place. So that bill passed the Senate uh, on August 10th. Obviously there would have been, you know, trumpets blaring and confetti from the sky if it was some uh, enormous victory, but there was not because everyone knows uh, it was eventually going to have to butt heads with uh, the house and they have their own plans for what infrastructure might look like. Uh, all of which is kind of bringing us back to uh, the budget reconciliation bill. Uh, final note on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So we're still staring down this deadline of the 27th. Uh, that's not an official deadline. That is a self-imposed deadline from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, that was that kind of came from this, this compromise she made with her more moderate colleagues a few months ago. It, it was only in the news for maybe a week or two. There was a, a quick tribe of 10 of them, uh, Democrats, that were simply saying, we're not going to play ball if you end up forcing us to vote for something that's going to end up not becoming law, because we don't want to get hit in the primaries. We don't want to get hit from the left. We don't want to get hit from the right. If you make us vote for something progressive that never makes it to the president's desk, that's just going to hurt us. Please don't make us do that. So the compromise was, all right, I promise you a vote by the 27th. Now, leaders of political parties make all kinds of promises to their constituents. Uh, so we'll see if that holds, uh, but so far so good in terms of keeping a vote scheduled, because I do believe, according to Steiny Hoyer, that there is a vote scheduled for the IIJA the 27th, Steiny Hoyer being uh, the, the primary whip for Democrats in the House. So they, they kind of set the dates and let everybody know when it's gonna happen and, and then keeps uh, their ducks in a row. So the budget reconciliation bill, um, doubling back to that to 
fill in more detail as we get closer to a showdown here. $3.5 trillion over 10 years. Uh, budget reconciliation bills come in many steps. Right now, we are a couple of steps in, if you will, and we'll address that uh, here in, in a few minutes uh, after Emily has a, a couple minutes to speak herself. Uh, but we're sort of two or three steps into the process here. If you go running around through Google and uh, searching different, your favorite news source, you'll see that you know some weeks back that the uh, budget resolution or the framework has already passed um, the House and, and the Senate. And this is true, but again, uh, it's not this big victory or this big event. They simply passed the framework uh, and that's their way of saying, okay, go, we're ready to start talking about what we want numbers to look like, what policies we wanna get in there. Uh, it's important because it includes those instructions, those all important instructions to include reconciliation for different portions of what will become uh, the budget bill. So that's that's sort of where both uh, chambers are in terms of their collective action. But moving forward, uh, the House has has gotten a little bit ahead of the Senate, and we'll again we'll get into reasons there. So why 3.5 trillion dollars? What makes it so big? What makes it so different from the one trillion we're talking about with the Infrastructure Investment Act? Well, actually, the 3.5 trillion would be on top of uh, the the one trillion altogether for the Infrastructure Investment Act. Uh, so they they would end up stacking on top of each other and, and bring it possibly to as much as a $4.5 trillion uh, in, in budget framework, uh, depending on how uh, the House is sort of measuring the, the $1 trillion mark right now for the budget. But everything else uh, is childcare programs, uh, Medicare expansion, two years of free community college, uh, extensions of expansions of the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, and a few others. Uh, all of these, these more progressive a liberal program, so to speak, that were introduced and, and supported by the administration from the American Jobs Plan uh, or Act and the American Families Plan. Uh, a lot of money touching on a, a lot of uh, different areas. Now, what we are supporting and, and what legislative priorities for the GFOA are involved, uh, I'll, I'm about to pass that over, but there's, there's one thing, one little bit of inside baseball I want to I drop in for you guys because we really are just kind of watching along here. So. That Medicare expansion is very, very important because rumor has it around Capitol Hill, and it is a rumor, again, inside baseball, that a deal was struck between chairman of the budget, uh, Senate Budget Committee, Bernie Sanders, some months ago with the White House, uh, that if you stay with us, Bernie, if you see this all the way through with the budget resolution and, and keep the progressive side of the party in line, we promise you that hell or high water we will make sure the expansion of Medicare happens because that has long been uh, Senator Sanders' uh, a point champion that he wanted to expand, expand Medicare in a very real way. Now that's a big thing to bite off and chew. Um, it's something to keep in mind considering that could be a $400 billion uh, you know, increase to the budget and could attribute 50 to 60 billion for the first year. It, it really is gonna be important when we come down to what that top line number is. And so we're getting to the end of September where a lot of imposed deadlines, a lot of promises are going to be tested uh, as we have to brush up against real deadlines like the fiscal year of the government running out, uh, the debt ceiling, but we'll loop back to that here in a few minutes. For now, I'm gonna pass it back to Emily to talk a little bit about GFOA's specific legislative priorities. Thanks so much, Michael. So, um, so, as, as Michael mentioned, um, the uh, Nancy Pelosi has now a budget resolution that has instructions on it. And the instructions are from the Senate, basically, you've got this top line number, this $3.5 trillion. And what happens in reconciliation is you've got this sort of top line number, and then the Speaker of the House receives that information and she looks at the package and she says, okay, um, 3.5, that probably isn't all entirely in one committee of jurisdiction. It's probably a progressive agenda that's throughout all of the committees of the House. And so what she does is she kind of looks at that 3.5 and she decides sort of how to divvy it up between each committee, which of course there's a lot of various committees that relates to state and local governments. Um, and, 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 and the health and, and the services that we provide, like for example, um, commerce, science, and technology, of course, relates to state and local governments, energy and national, natural resources, 
um, environment and public works, health and education, labor and pensions, all of those committees that are going to be looking at um, the, 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 the instructions and that top line number have been given a portion of that $3.5 trillion. Now, what's especially important to us or the committees that are especially important to us are the tax writing committees, is the tax writing committee. And the tax writing committee, which we talked about a lot before, is called the Ways and Means Committee. The Ways and Means, as we all know from Schoolhouse Rock, um, the Ways and Means Committee has the power of the purse. The House has the power of the purse. And so we're always uh, making sure we have strong, deep relationships with the committee staff in the House Ways and Means Committee, which we do. Um, and it's been an excellent opportunity for us to remain um, in touch with them as they're developing um, this reconciliation bill. Their counterparts over in the Senate, the Senate Finance Committee, of course, is also a committee that we stay very close to. But but for now, as, as, as Pelosi has sort of issued out to all of the various committees, their chunk of the cake or their, their slice of the pie, um, we were in contact with the Ways and Means Committee, and we tried to ensure, of course, that our stuff was in there. And by our stuff, what I mean by that is, of course, um, advanced refunding, bank qualified debt, and to um, some degree, of course, also direct pay bonds. So let's start it out at the very beginning advance funding. So um, we were a little worried and we've talked on previous week in Washington's about how a budget reconciliation instructions might try to shore up or try to capture all of the costs of our bond provisions in the 10 year window. We were afraid that that it would fall into that sort of circumstance where the budget committee would have to either guess whether it's in or out. If you've got expenditures that go beyond that 10 year window, some cases it's possible to be amended out through what's called this, um, the, uh, uh, a rule that becomes especially relevant in reconciliation, you may remember um, the bird rule. So um, we were happy to see the advance refunding um, in full instruction back in this tax title. And what that means is um, it goes back to full restoration that was written prior to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which means um, one, one advance refunding prior to the call date. So a full restoration of advance refunding prior to Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Then uh, we were also pleased to see bank qualified debt or what we call the small borrow, borrower exception in the tax title. Um, we call it the small borrower exception because it takes bank, which is um, not the best word in the world. We take the bank on out of it and we call it small borrower. Um, the small borrower now, um, according to the tax title, um, the proposed tax title, has access to a $30 million level of bank qualified debt as opposed to what it currently is the $10 million level. Now, the other thing that this legislation does or this, this proposal does is it pegs the, the BQ limit at the borrower level, not the issuer level. And the reason that that is important is because in the case of, say, for example, a conduit issuer in um, a state that has many obligors, many borrowers underneath it, uh, we wanted to make sure that each one of those borrowers had access to that BQ threshold. And um, in this proposal, in the tax title, indeed, that's the way that that legislation is written. So raises from 10 to $30 million and it pegs it at the borrower level. So all good stuff on that case. Um, the third thing that ended up in the tax title is a nod to um, an expired uh, debt product. Well, expired in issuance, but certainly people are still paying off, but build America bonds. Um, in, this, in this tax title, they call them direct pay credit bonds. And, and that actually got a little confusing when we first read the tax title because we said, okay, are we talking about uh, direct payments to issuers or are we talking about those credits or the other option that was available in the BAB circumstance? And, and, and reading through the legislation and talking with our friends over on the Ways and Means Committee, you are indeed able to verify that the way that it's written is that an issuer will issue taxable debt and associated with that taxable debt 
then becomes a direct pay subsidy to the issuer. So the issuer issues out the taxable debt along with it is a, is a, a credit, but it's a direct pay credit. Um, and it has a step down feature. So basically, um, if you are uh, planning to issue the direct pay bonds, if indeed this, this bill passes and it gets over the Senate and it, and it passes the Senate and it heads to the president and it's signed, um, here's what the structure might look like. So um, what's important is that it is um, kind of hit the ground running type of new bond. Um, what it does is um, for the years of 2022 and 2024 through 2024 issuance, um, the issuer would get a 35% subsidy for the life of the bond. So it would behoove a lot of issuers to go ahead and run quick uh, to, that are interested in issuing these bonds, of course, to run quick. Um, to get those bonds issued between 22 and 24, because beyond 2024, each year has a step down feature. It goes down to 25, it goes down to 32. In year 26, it goes down to 30. And 27 and thereafter, it would be at a 28% subsidy rate. Now, the other thing that really plagued us, of course, with Build America bonds and still leaves a sort of unsavory uh, taste in our mouth is the fact that subs those subsidies were subject to sequestration and, and that's a budget procedure that happens in congress very often if um if there is a congress that decides to for sure up uh, mandatory spending they'll do that through a process called sequestration and um sequestration attacked uh the babs subsidies because there was no sequestration protection written into that law this law, um, what the Ways and Means Committee did is they looked to not um, for instruction to um, future budget committee chairs, because that's something that cannot fit into a reconciliation bill. You can't you can't tell a future budget committee chairman not to do something outside of the window of 10 years. Remember that 10 year structure is so important. And so the ways and means hands were tied. They said, well, we can't offer we can't just tell the next budget committee chairman for the next 30 years not to sequester these payments, these direct payments. And we said, okay, well, what's another creative way that you could think about protecting these bonds from sequestration? And what they did is they wrote into the bill a provision that would essentially uh, instruct the IRS with a gross up or a make whole statement. So if in the event you are an issuer who has issued between 2022 and 2024, and you are owed the 35% subsidy rate on your interest, then um, that if 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 sequestration attacks that 35% figure and it goes down to I don't know 34.8%, um, that uh, that derivative or whatever's left, so to make you whole to that 35%, the IRS is instructed to make insurers whole. Now um, I think that the next logical question is is IRS funded to do that and. <laughs> Um, it, wh how in the, how is IRS going to implement that? They have a hard enough time processing 8038s right now. How in the world is that going to work? Of course, that's it. That is a legislative in implementation question. Um, but did want to make you aware that they did try to put in sequestration protection into this language. Um, it's in there. We're going to flush this out in the debt committee, um, in our next debt committee. Um, but as as we continue to look and and try to strengthen what is written into the budget reconciliation bill right now, certainly something that we're taking um, a closer look at. So in the next slide, which I believe is my slide, yes, okay. There's actually more in this tax title. It's quite a bit more. Um, there are a lot of uh, bond provisions that are maybe tangential to state and local governments, but certainly worth, um, I think, ex I think letting you know that they're in there. Um, there is um, very much, uh, I think, um, uh, something that we expected from this administration, um, very flexible and generous um, labor. Uh, requirements written into this law. So, for example, in those direct pay subsidy bonds, um, there is a Davis-Bacon requirement. In addition, this the, uh, the this tax title proposes 
for the PAB ceiling to be lifted on certain water and sewer facility bonds. But in addition, it adds in a Davis-Bacon requirement. So as you can see, Section 135-108 um, adds in Davis-Bacon Act requirements with respect to um, those PAB facilities as well as the direct pay bonds. Another interesting thing that we thought was that we thought was notable um, is the very last bullet on this slide is the treatment of Indian tribes as states with respect to bond issuance. We are we've been in touch with our partners at the Native American Finance Officers Association. Um, and we're also interested to see how um, little this was scored. Um, essentially, you know, the federal government comes out with sort of a list of how much each item is going to cost. Um, so this this treatment of Indian tribes with access, general obligation and or revenue bond and or private activity bond access um, to the municipal bond market was something that was a little bit of a surprise. We're working with NAFOA right now to try to make sure that we can offer the support that they need um, as they're considering this. It sounds like maybe it was introduced by Gwen Moore um, out of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. Um, and the, the last thing I would say too, again, regarding the score and regarding um, that bet big top line number, remember, it's a $3.5 trillion number. And you may ask yourself, okay, great, Emily. Now you said Native American tribal access to, um, to the municipal bond market doesn't cost that much. How much does our stuff cost? And looking at the Joint Commission on Taxation and their estimation of how much it's actually going to cost the federal government, if you look at advanced refunding, they have scored that at $14 billion. So it will cost the federal government $14 billion to fully reinstate advanced refunding. Um, with uh, bank qualified debt or the small borrower exception, they've calculated that in the $4 billion figure. And last but not least, in the direct pay subsidy bond arena, um, in order to reestablish a permanent, uh, a permanent reinstallment of direct pay subsidy bonds is uh, running at about $22 billion. So, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, that's a lot of money. We're <laughs> throwing around a lot of B's and a lot of T's. Um, but if you think about sort of the larger picture, that $3.5 trillion picture, how much does our stuff chalk up? It's really not that much comparable to other provisions that are in there, like the extension of the child tax credit, which costs, according to the JCT, about $500 billion. Um, so that really matters, of course, in the Senate negotiations. And for that, I'm going to turn that back over to Michael Thomas. Thank you, Emily. Was it forty billion dollars for GFOI legislative priorities? That's probably in the other pair of pants of federal government work. Oh, this is actually, uh, I believe, your letter, Emily. That's right. Can you forward the slides one more time to get back to Thomas? There we go. Perfect. Thank you, powers that be, Mayreen. Okay. So with a little bit more of our, our context colored in there for where uh, GFOA is, let's uh, continue our slodge forward with our, our deepening understanding of how reconciliation is working. So as we've we've been pointing to, uh, the process has gone like this, you know, the, the budget bill comes out with top line numbers, those committees assign the work to the various committees. So for example, in the house, I believe you'd have 13 different committees of jurisdiction who are sort of slicing up and, and hashing out uh, their individual uh, texts and, and language they want to use for their portion of the reconciliation bill. So that all basically for the House that is concluded this week. Um, I spent most of my early week, Monday through Wednesday, uh, watching uh, C-SPAN and the riveting coverage of markup hearings that have been occurring uh, and, and every, uh, every stroke of the pen and every uh, stump speech it's it's all to sort of again put together cobble together uh in a frankenstein fashion if you will this is overall budget bill that is keeping under the top line numbers uh and is following the instructions that have been given by the budget committee and then sent back to the budget committee which is what we uh, assume is going on today and early next week so again in the house only uh, the budget committee is getting back for the first time all of the language uh, that has been getting worked on over the past couple of weeks for their side of the reconciliation bill. Now, this coincides with the September 15th uh, deadline that Speaker Pelosi had put down to get their first round of language in. And it looks like for uh, our intents and purposes now, they, they have made that work. 
uh, you'll remember that I had mentioned uh, there was a compromise, one of the compromises that uh, Democratic leaders uh, had made with their own party was Pelosi and the moderates. Uh, their whole compromise was don't make us vote in something that's very left of us that's going to lose. Um, you know, we, we want to know what's going to fall on its face if it's going to end up going to a vote. So with that in mind, uh, the leaders in the Democratic Party had uh, authorized or had encouraged or directed, I should say, their staff in the House and the Senate to sort of work together simultaneously, even though officially really only the House committees have been working on reconciliation text, uh, kind of full tilt boogie. What that means is that the more controversial stuff, the, the issues that they think are going to get caught up once the Senate takes up a reconciliation bill, they want to talk about it now so they can know what they can really offer support to and what's going to sort of violate that compromise they made with leadership to stay on board, uh, even though they, they may be you know, unhappy with the dollar amount of spending or unhappy with the exact priorities being pursued. Uh, they want to be able to sort of cheat ahead a little bit so they don't get caught flat-footed when it comes to election time uh, in, in 2022. So all this time, the House and the Senate committees have been working together on the important stuff, working together in general. Uh, where we are is sort of right where I put our you are here emblem. Uh, we're at a crossroads where we're, we're sort of destined to hit these uh, a tray of, of deadlines at the end of the month. Uh, so the 27th, we know the infrastructure uh, bill is expecting a vote on the House side that uh, Stenia Hoyer has, has already confirmed is happening. The end of the month also brings uh, the end of the fiscal year, meaning we need to reauthorize just any funding for the federal government. Uh, and that sort of introduced a couple of, of new players into this whole deal. Um, and on top of the regular issues that are going to be getting discussed at reconciliation, one, the debt ceiling. You know, we hear about the debt ceiling every so on. Um, it's it's really a political football, uh, so they can start kind of a staring contest with the with the minority and and see what they can sort of uh, bargain out of them. Uh, but you know, truth be told, on Capitol Hill, it would be a true bedlam if a debt ceiling were actually you know hit or if they failed to uh, uh, legislate or act in a way that allowed the Treasury to uh, continue to issue debt, which allows them to fund the government. Uh, what's likely to happen, and this has started to float to the top in some conversations and some news outlets, is that they're talking about, and this is our second player, a concurrent resolution, uh, which would basically take last year's uh, fiscal year budget from the federal government and just carbon copy it for the coming year so they can keep things going with the negotiations and, and keep the lights on everywhere so the federal government just doesn't, you know, shut down. Uh, I mentioned last week in Washington that the debt ceiling, uh, which again, it's the overall number of, of debt that the federal government is legally allowed to have, meaning it, it, it gives them the ability to issue bonds and keep cash flow going. Uh, that debt limit was suspended uh, in July of 2019 by the previous administration. Uh, and now that we've gone beyond, gone beyond uh, July 2021, it has you know expired, that suspension. And basically, the Treasury has been uh, doing every little thing it can using uh, extraordinary measures, they would say, to make sure that we're, we're not violating our, our statutory debt limit. Uh, but they are running out of tools, and they say mid-October is what we're looking at. So really, we are seeing a complement of either um, statutory deadlines or self-imposed deadlines, uh, all of which are going to have quite the bearing on the decisions that are made uh, right ahead. Uh, what we can hope for is that these committees in the Senate and the House side are working in such a way that they are able to take two steps together instead of taking one step forward and the other side taking one step back. Because the Senate, uh, even though they are working with the House, it's really going to come down to what their top line numbers are. Uh, all roads kind of lead to the Senate, uh, and specifically, they lead to moderate Democrats in the Senate. Uh, get the next slide, please. So what's going on right now? What's 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 actually happening as I speak uh, and where, where might we be going here? All right. So both chambers, staff and committees, they're talking. This is what Nancy Pelosi and leadership has always wanted. And we're thinking that really it's going to be the, the Senate rules that are going to have the biggest impact on the budget bill and the reconciliation bill, as it always is, because as we continue to talk about um, reconciliation in the House is, is very different. It doesn't it's not quite as complex as it is in the Senate, you know, Emily had mentioned uh, the Bird Rule, which we won't get into, but uh, more or less the, the 51 is still the magic number. 
and all roads are going to be going through the Senate and their complex uh, processes to, to sort of get this done. Now, break it down and even another level here of, of where these roads really lead to, and it's to the doorways of two moderate uh, Democrats, uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema and uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who uh, both are sort of, uh, well, they're the most important players in Washington right now. Uh, we've seen multiple news outlets take up op-eds from them, and they've been steadfast in at least being you know, apprehensive over uh, what exactly uh, is going to happen. Now, today and yesterday, I believe, there has been um, positive statements from Democratic leadership stating that they believe they will get what they need out of this, uh, that they will be able to um, you know, sort of have their cake and eat it too. Uh, but the question comes down to your, your margins of victory here. You know, we're, we're talking about a $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation budget package right now. We know that uh, Senator Manchin out of West Virginia has outright you know, claimed that's not going to work for him. That's something in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range may be more palatable to him. But that is a huge uh, jump down from the $3.5 trillion, $3 trillion number that we're at now. And if we you know, pull back the clock and watch the film, we can see that you know, $3.5 trillion at the time was a compromise for some members of the Democrat Party. So how exactly we get from 3.5 trillion down to something that's uh, better for moderate Democrats in the one and a half to two trillion dollar range uh, is is a bit beyond me. Uh, but they are working on it now. Um, the Senate has said that they're probably about uh, half the distance that the House has made because uh, the House, as I've said, they are they're finished. Their their budget bill and their language for it has largely been submitted back to the Budget Committee. Uh, which means it will be heading to the Rules Committee, uh, where they'll sort of keep tweaking things. Uh, rest assured, if uh, any big changes, significant changes come to be during the uh, the time that the reconciliation bills with the Rules Committee, that'll come out. But I, I think we're all kind of staring down when the, the Senate finally takes up the mantle of the top line number and starts talking for real uh, where this money is, is going to go, uh, how much they're willing to get behind, and, and what it's going to cost everybody. Because the, the bigger deadline here that we, uh, I don't want to say worry about, but we're going to be aware of, is uh, 2022 elections. You know, the, the further we get down with this year, the more that our elected officials are going to be thinking about next year. Uh, and there are many uh, elections, many races that could have big consequences, significant consequences uh, for, for uh, congressional leadership and management going forward. Uh, and, and the more we slip into the end of this year, uh, the more decisions now are gonna be uh, hinging on decisions and consequences for later. Uh, so, so that in mind, uh, it, it's going to be a time to, to keep your eyes on Washington, to keep an eye on the FLC here as we are pumping out different alerts uh, and notifications to get you guys on board with, with reaching out to your elected officials. Because when this stuff happens, it's going to happen very, very quickly. Uh, all these committee hearings, uh, all the activity of, of dressing up these bills and getting the language, uh, it, it kind of goes on and on and on. And then once you hit a certain point, everything kind of springs into action. And that's when we're going to need uh, all of uh, our members to spring into action so we can uh, hopefully get what we need out of this and get our legislative priorities set. Uh, but that said, that's this is where we are with the Senate and House. This is where reconciliation is. And I'll go ahead and hand it off to my colleague, Maureen. Thank you, Thomas, and hi, everyone. So yesterday, the Treasury released a report that documents the progress that the funds from the American Rescue Plan have made uh, from uh, six months ago. And six months ago, the law was actually enacted. So this is basically uh, Treasury's report to everybody about uh, what's been going on with the funds they have oversight of and what all that looks like. So I've summarized the highlights from the report here. Um, and as you can see, that includes the creation of over 3 million jobs, um, 179 million Americans becoming fully vaccinated, and the economy doing much better. According to the report, a real GDP growth in the first half of 2021 was strong enough to push economic output above its pre-pandemic peak, which is uh, pretty incredible and, and great news. 
Um, even with that progress, though, the report does acknowledge there is still a lot of work to do. No surprise there, but it did project that the funds from the American Rescue Plan, plan will continue to support the growth and opportunity long into the future. So um, there was also an update on families and households. Uh, the report stated that by the end of August, the, that the Treasury had made more than, um, oh God, what was the number? <laughs> I think it was 170 million um, economic impact payments that totaled over $400 billion. Um, and then through around September, Treasury made uh, child tax credit payments, which totaled $46 billion. Um, and on that note, research uh, by the Census Bureau Household Pulse Survey was quoted, and it stated that food insecurity among families and children dropped 24% after the distribution of the first child tax credit payment. So uh, that's really great news. Um, the report also gave an update on the emergency rental assistance program. Uh, it said that as of July 31st, state and uh, local governments had used ERA funds to make over 1 million payments to low income households, um, which helped families obviously um, avoid evictions and other issues. Um, they also quoted that uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and Dim, I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to guess Des Moines, Iowa. Where, uh, so these two were named in the report as two grantees that were um, close to spending all of their funds from the first tranche of ERA, which was um, interesting to hear because the last time we heard a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, there was questions about, you know, why aren't local uh, governments spending their money? Uh, but here in this report, um, I guess looking back six months, um, the results aren't too um, depressing. <laughs> um, so the, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know if that was a private chat, but whoever it was, I it said nailed Des Moines, so appreciate it. <laughs> the report also talked about the fiscal recovery funds for state and local governments, uh, basically saying that Treasury has sent over $240 billion as part of the first tranche to provide support, um, you know, fight the pandemic and help economic recovery at the local level. Um, it, it mentioned that uh, the lessons were learned from the Great Recession, um, and they quoted that as being a big reason for making this move to provide all the support to locals and the importance of providing this money to local governments, um, you know, to avoid those budget cuts um, and avoid layoffs or rehire public, uh, public sector workers. So all that and just continuing to invest long term in, the, uh, in their communities. They also gave some examples of how funds were being used, um, like Harris County, Texas, which has provided $100 uh, incentives for people to receive their first dose of vaccines. This obviously boosted uh, vaccination rates. Um, this would be a curious case study, actually. You know, just is, is money the answer to everything? Um, Washington, D.C. has planned to use $350 million of their funds to make investments in affordable housing. Um, and then they also mentioned that the state of Kentucky plans to devote $250 million to water and sewer infrastructure projects uh, to just deliver safe water to people and also create more than uh, 3,800 direct and indirect jobs. So. Those are some examples that they gave. Um, and then, of course, they also added that um, state and locals will be receiving the $100 billion of the remaining fiscal recovery funds next year as part of the second crunch. Um, so overall, a pretty positive outlook in um, that was presented in the report uh, regarding the impact of the American Rescue Plan um, in terms of response and recovery. Actually, on that note, some of you who participated on our Monday call already know that uh, we did a brief survey of recipients and saw that the vast majority did find the funds to provide greater um, fiscal stability to plan for a long-term recovery. Of those who answered no for this question, they said that the funds were being used um, more towards immediate concerns rather than long-term planning or addressing anything in the future, um, or there were some issues due to the hit their general fund took and how the limitations laid out by Treasury don't really allow them to use funds in a way that would actually um, help their community the best way in terms of recovery. So we'll be continuing our own research on the impact of the fiscal recovery fund specifically. Um, that's definitely something you can look forward to in the future. Um, 
Outside that, uh, last Friday, there was a minor update on the final rule for the recovery funds. As you know, we are um, using the interim final rule. That is not the final rule. Um, Treasury basically gave uh, the following updates last week, saying that the public comment period that ended um, July 16th generated over a thousand comments. Uh, they're going to be taking this fall to review all those comments. So again, there wasn't really a, well, I guess you can call this a time frame, not exactly the time frame we would like, which is a specific date, but um, good enough, right? They said they're going to continue into the fall uh, looking over the comments. So who knows, maybe before Christmas, <laughs> uh, but until then the interim final rule will remain uh, binding and effective for recipients to use. Uh, so for everybody who's maybe kind of delaying using the funds because they're a little nervous, you know, in the absence of a, um, of a final rule, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, they did make it very clear that in this period where there is no final rule, the interim final rule is, uh, is absolutely uh, effective and your money will not be recouped for any reason. Um, so um, I guess. I feel like there was one more point I was going to make here and it's slipping my mind because I didn't put it on the slide. Um, okay. Wait list. Oh, wait, oh, well, that's in the other other pending guidance. So I'll just get to that. Sure. No problem. So, um, so in the last week in Washington, we mentioned there were many technical issues with the um, portal that led to many recipients missing the deadline. So Treasury acknowledged the technical issues and they said that as long as the recipient had attempted to submit the report by the deadline uh, and there was uh, proof of that, like an email to the Treasury, then they would not have any issues. And they said September 10th, uh, so last Friday, as an unofficial extension, and I say it that way because in our meeting with them, they refused to use the word extension. And even when I said extension, they said, no, it's not an extension. I said, okay. Uh, so whatever it was, September 10th was a date, um, but now we're past that. So um, what we're waiting to see is a list from Treasury that they will uh, eventually dispatch to recipients, a kind of listing out, um, you know, people who were uh, late. Actually, I'm not sure if it's just going to be, well, it probably would be, <laughs> I'm talking to myself now. So it would be uh, the late submissions or maybe those who didn't submit kind of like um, not a very good list to be on. So <laughs> that's something that we're waiting to see. Um, Emily, did you want to add anything to that uh, regarding maybe the, yeah, we, we think this is going to be a pretty major event. Um, we're not certain how many names are going to end up on this list, but we certainly think there is definitely a lot of headline risk in this list. Um, we've been trying to survey as best we can and canvas as best we can our membership just to make sure that everyone has done everything that they can to submit the information that they can. But if you know of an organization that was required to submit the interim report and or the performance report and they were unable to, whether it's through technology or um, otherwise, we would very much like to talk with them, make sure that they've been in touch with Treasury, because the other thing that Treasury mentioned was, if you have established a problem ticket, that is, you technology did not work, you couldn't assign user roles, there was something that was wrong with the system in and of itself, you're a city county, for example, then, um, you know, Treasury wants to make sure that they give you sort of the relationship advice on how to make sure that you can approach the portal. The portal then becomes uh, the method for you to submit and you won't end up on late list. Um, we 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 we're, we are unsure of who who is going to end up on that list, as I mentioned. But um, in an IC web, ICMA webinar I did with uh, Treasury folks just a couple of days ago, they said that they were actually pleased about the amount and the number of submitters. So hopefully it's a very tiny list, it's manageable, and it's something that we're able to help with and assist with. But again, real quick note, if you know of anybody who was late or had technology issues, please put them in touch with us. We'd be happy to dispatch them over to Treasury. Thanks, Emily. Um, and then speaking about portals and all that good stuff, the next deadline is coming up. Um, again, that is October 31st. That is the project and expenditures report. 
just like the last reports, this one will have a user guide um, as well. And that is what we're all waiting on. So not much there either, but uh, high hopes, um, even though Treasury hasn't given a time frame, uh, we will be touching base with them next week. Um, and we hope to corner them and get all the answers, which never really happens, but we try. So we'll, you know, <laughs> if we get anything. Um, this report will also be the first for NEUs, non-entitlement units. Now, from the guidance, there is specific information sectioned off for only NEUs to provide, but states will also be reporting on behalf of NEUs, like um, updates on the distribution to their NEUs. Um, the past couple of days, we've received a, a few calls from NEUs that were very upset about the IDME uh, verification process. Um, and then after a question was asked if NEUs would even have a role in the portal, because, you know, states are also reporting on them, I took a closer look into the language in the guidance, which only indicates NEUs will be submitting some information of their own. I just decided to reach out to the Treasury, kind of highlighting some of the language that could be interpreted as somewhat ambiguous. Um, Treasury basically said that they would encourage NEUs to just wait for the user guide to come out which again puts us back in square one, which is okay because eventually something will have to come out. October 31st isn't really that far away. It's just a little over a month. Um, so yeah, uh, square one, still kind of waiting for more information on um, all that, but um, uh, hopefully it'll be, actually, I, I don't even know where to go from there because in the scenario, Treasury kind of does a plot twist and then the user guide says, hey, NEUs, don't even worry about it. You don't need to go through the verification process for the IDME. I'm pretty sure a good a good number have already signed up. So I that is a that is a something we'll deal with when the time comes, I guess. Um, and with that, that's kind of all we have. I'll hand it back to Emily. I know uh, we want to talk about the IRS slide. Um, Oh, October 31st is a Sunday. It is, I'm literally pulling up my own calendar. Okay. Oh, yes, it is a Sunday. It is, <laughs> I guess. Um, we, we are not, we, we cannot answer that question on behalf of the U.S. Treasury right now. All we have is October 31st. A very spooky day for all of us, <laughs> um, but we will definitely bring that to Treasury's attention. But I think also um, an important thing that we've brought to the IRS attention, as Marine's flipping around on the slides, um, is um, a so 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 just to emphasize a key point that Marine said. You know, we cannot definitively say that NEUs need to register with IDME. We've tried every which way to ask Treasury to give us definitive guidance, and they haven't. Um, and so what we would recommend is that NEUs hold tight and wait for official guidance from the Treasury to register with IDME. If you are already registered and you are an NEU, then you will be ahead of the game if that is required. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we would maybe suggest to put a hold on that. Maybe, maybe take your time, consider that IRS, I'm sorry, Treasury is still in the process of developing the portal and will have specific guidance on IDME. The last thing I would say is, Maureen and I uh, just had a conversation earlier today um, and uh, what, what we have done several complimentary webinars for our membership. As you know, we did an, an, an initial ARPA webinar, then we did a reporting and compliance webinar. Um, in the works, uh, we are planning an NEU webinar, which would be specifically tailored to NEUs on um, first stage one, how to start, where to go from here, and hopefully we're able to solicit some information from Treasury on what the portal exactly is gonna look like so that we're able to give you and GFOA, all GFOA members, a better understanding of what to prepare, how to prepare it for that October 31st deadline. So we don't have a date yet. Marina and I were looking maybe at the first week of October, but of course you all will be the first to know. Um, the last thing for this week in Washington that I did want to make sure to um, uh, 
discuss a little bit with this crew. This was in our newsletter this week. Um, GFOA, along with many other national organizations, is in the utility space, frankly. Um, there's a, a, a fair amount of public power, public water, uh, public utilities, but also with our sister organizations, the National League of Cities and the National Association of Counties, we have come together to appeal to the IRS to have a better understanding of the tax treatment of ARPA payments to individuals. So I personally have reached out to our intergovernmental person at the IRS who was very quick to respond to say, we don't have specific guidance on how local governments should um, uh, treat from a tax perspective payments that are made to individuals for say utility arrearages or for rent arrearages or for any other um, eligible expenditure um, under ARPA. Um, but what they did point us to is the established IRS um, uh, policy, which happened about a month ago on the emergency rental assistance program, where the IRS had made a determination that a renter receiving relief is considered, is not considered income to households and therefore 1099s are not a requirement if you're using the money for individuals. Now, it also says ERA payments, including utilities or energy expenses that are paid to the individual are not considered income. Okay, so those two circumstances in ERAP are not taxable income to individuals. However, in ERAP, if you make the payment toward landlords or to a distributing entity directly, then that income is taxable to those entities. And so therefore it would require the local government to ensure that they have the, the appropriate tax documentation. Um, so if you look at that middle column there, the treatment for the emergency rental assistance program, if you uh, kind of think about it, if the IRS is, is, is considering ARPA in the same light of the emergency rental assistance program, then um, we are, um, I think, especially lucky, <laughs> especially lucky because there probably are already payments that have gone out to individuals um, through ARPA, um, especially right now. Now, what we're asking for the Treasury with this group of, of public utility providers and our sister associations is we're asking for a private letter ruling that is exactly similar to the emergency rental assistance program. As soon as we get definitive guidance from the IRS, um, then we can give you um, guidance on the tax treatment of ARPA payments to individuals, to businesses, to um, utility distributing um, distributors, and or other businesses in your community so that there's a, a process for you to reconcile and collect the tax information that you need. This was brought to our attention many times by our Monday call. There's also special consideration and a question into the IRS about the tax treatment of premium pay, whether the um, the tax liability is on the government that issues the grant, if you're granting to an employee of a private corporation, or is it the private corporation's tax obligation? Um, so we are waiting on that response as well. I just wanted to make sure you guys knew and hopefully you can distribute to your networks. GFOA along with a very strong uh, public utility um, coalition is trying to solicit, get that answer from the IRS, get that answer as quickly as we can because we know that that helps communities plan um, and hopefully we'll hear back from them soon. As soon as we do, we'll dispatch that out to you. Um, as soon as we hear any information, we will dispatch it out to you. We appreciate you joining us again this week. Thank you so much for your time and we look forward to talking with you again in the next couple of weeks, everyone. Have a great weekend.